I'm Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We're both from Theogen, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about what you need to get started uh, to start implementing AI in your bioinformatics laboratory. And I think last episode, we were kind of talking about all the kind of fantastic things about AI, ChatGPT, and uh, all the things that are kind of amazing about <laughs> AI as it pertains to bioinformatics and really other uh, all human endeavors there. And we were you know, quite bullish on it because it's certainly an exciting technology. It's game-changing in a lot of ways, uh, but there's certainly some limitations to these kinds of technologies. And I think today we wanna uh, kind of bring it back down to earth and sp speak a little bit to what a laboratory would actually need to be able to properly implement these kinds of technologies in a prudent and effective way throughout their laboratories. Yeah, I mean, you can use so much of this uh, straight out of the box, you know, fire up chat GPT, cost you nothing, fire in a question. And, you know, that's how most people get started. It's like that uh, that free sample bringing you in, you know. Uh, I don't know if you have that in supermarkets in the US, you know, they have little free samples, free tasters. But yeah. It's that kind of way, you know. Uh, it, it, it There's a whole meme about it. And, like, being from uh, an immigrant family in the US, that was, like, how we spent our Sundays was walking around Costco, kind of going in there and trying to get the deals and just going back in lines for the uh, free samples of like, you know, cooked hot dogs or something. And like <laughs> every Sunday, that was like all the, uh, all the families would be kind of lining up and getting their free samples. It was something my parents had never seen and thought, why wouldn't we take advantage of this? So yeah, I, I understand that lore <laughs> of the free samples <laughs> and trying to get as much as you can. Uh, from yeah, so it's like, it's like that with ChatGPT, you know, like you get the free sample and then you get drawn in and then you find people who've, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, they, they're really passionate about it. Like for me, you know, it's like, I, I think it's the solution to most things these days, you know, have you tried ChatGPT and uh, yeah, like I'm very passionate about it as you probably well know, because I don't shut up about it. But uh, yeah, what you need to get started though, is just that initial enthusiasm and you need, you know, these kind of champions basically to drive it forward because I know there is some people worried like, oh, you know, what if we lose our jobs and, you know, this is a threat that's something to maybe stay away from. But actually, it's the opposite of that. You know, if you're the early adopter and the early movers, you can really embrace it and turbocharge things like with the Internet. You know, when that came in, that didn't um, make everyone unemployed overnight. It, it turbocharged how we do things and all of these technologies usually end up better you might have to change how you do things but you know it's, it's all for for the good i agree completely it definitely feels not like we're quite at the robot overlord takeover right i think we're kind of at the sweet spot of ai and automation and machine learning implementation where it's kind of just bolstering capabilities and we could probably talk about that later in this. It's like, you know, especially as it pertains to bioinformatics, I don't think we're quite at the point where, you know, you can run a molecular laboratory and have GPT and you have your bioinformatics completely solved for you. Rather, you're going to need somebody who at least has an understanding <clears throat> of the data, what's going on, basic principles of bioinformatics, who can then use things like GPT and um, uh, Copilot and all the other tools we've talked about in the past to expedite the whole process of actually making sense of these data. And, and, but I think when you first get into the GPT universe, it, it is kind of like that free sample. You're only seeing the good stuff cooked by the professionals. And you're thinking it's like, this thing is the panacea. This is answering everything. It knows 
It's been trained on all of the internet and like all of human text. It can answer every question. Uh, But then I think, you know, we've seen a couple of those really uh, terrible tales of taking it too far, right? I think there was that, the, the, the case of the lawyers that at this point is sort of an infamous story where there was some kind of airline case and they were representing the, the, the uh, some client that was, I don't know, in some way wronged by an airline uh, company. And they had this whole briefing. They said, I, you know, I can imagine almost cartoonishly the lawyers saying, write me a case against the airline company. And it had this huge verbose statement about, okay, this looks like beautifully, logically coherent. And they submitted that nearly blindly uh, to the judge and it turned out upon review, uh, th- it was fully making up cases. It was citing instances and precedents that that never happened, right? And that's so that's, that's, yeah, yeah. And and I believe these people are losing their 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 license, which you know, uh, rightfully so, to produce something like that. Um, you know, there's always the conversation of like students maybe cheating on essays and stuff like that. This is a whole nother yeah. level, right? To to take it to there. So these are things I think that need to be understood in terms of the limitations is this whole conversation of uh, of hallucination. I don't think we talked about this at all in the first episode. I don't know if you can give some kind of, you know, deferring you to the yeah. machine learning background and context of hallucination and uh, what this I means. I mean, it, it's only as good as uh, the information you feed in. And this is a problem. You do need experts to then go and review it, you know, because it can just make stuff up. And sometimes you see it with uh, particular URLs that it pops out. If you ask for reference, sometimes it pop out URLs, which are an amalgamation of many different, say, publications. And it makes up a URL that looks like it should go with this kind of thing rather than being an actual URL. And you see it in code as well. When you blocks of code, it might just start repeating, you know, like the same three, four lines over and over again. Or if you ask it for too many suggestions for something, it can kind of get confused and lose track of things. And again, uh, pop stuff out uh, in a strange way. Um, and also it can be confidently incorrect. That's the really difficult thing. It, it looks so good and it's so wrong sometimes. Um, but even then, you know, like it can make errors. Um, like I used uh, last night to do some Nextflow, right? And it produced a very pretty config. And then I ran and I was like, hang on a second, this is going to use like 20 terabytes of disk space because it's just done in a really silly way. You know, it's it's broken things up too nicely, too neatly. And uh, that's not how a human would have done it. They would have gone, actually, I know that this is uh, not the right way to architect this. It, it, and that's, I think, the key to the limitation is that it's kind of insidious and, and subtle in ways where it looks, like you said, confidently incorrect. So like when you're reading, be it a legal briefing or a code block, it looks exactly as a, a correct answer would look, right? It, it kind of provides the code block or it provides the rationale, <clears throat> but it really takes kind of a deeper level understanding of the subject matter that it's explaining to catch the hallucination. Um, and, yeah. and so whenever you're talking about training data, this is what I, is, is it hallucinating because like it's gathering so many things about the internet, like so many people have been wrong about this particular subject, or is it uh, that there's not enough information about a particular subject that it's, it's literally trying to predict the next word in there that it comes up with confidently incorrect answers in associations? It's a bit of both, you know, like say, like in our area, we work in COVID, right? And not to get controversial or anything, but there's a lot of 
bad press out there and disinformation out there and like vast quantities. And you can just imagine LLM uh, is going to be trained on that disinformation. And what is actually going to come out the other end? If you put in, in a few years time, if you type in COVID vaccine, whatever, is it going to be veering towards all the most vocal people who are saying all this crazy stuff? Or would it be on the hardcore scientific literature? So that, that worries me slightly, more than slightly. That that that's terrifying. And certainly. Yeah. And then you have uh, other things like uh like just you've asked such specific things that uh it it is just predicting the next word. And people have tried it out with very specific phrases from books, like that authors uh, authors want to prove that there is plagiarism and that their work had been used to train, say, ChatGPT. And some of them were pulling in very specific things that only existed in their books and nowhere else, and they knew it. And it's like a very much an indication of, yeah, we know that it's come from here because we're the only people who have said that. Okay, yeah, there's there's a number of things you said in there. I think the the one that's definitely sticking out though is the arbiter of truth. What what kind of floats to the top as the assertion that GPT makes in its responses? Um, and and you know, in our world, we're all about citations, right? So, and I don't, you know, there was a really brief beta testing of the browser GPT plugin where it would give you at least uh, citations across the internet. They've since um scrap that feature i don't know exactly why i didn't read too much into it but <clears throat> that felt like a start in that at least it would give you links to hey i'm thinking of this idea as per this website and if like you click that website it's like you know conspiracy theories.us or something or whatever dot uh, org it's like mm-hmm. okay wait a minute maybe that's not exactly the, the source i want to stand on uh whenever i'm actually completing my response uh but then like you said if it's citing something maybe of uh, peer-reviewed articles or consensus from the communities of uh, experts in the field, maybe that's something a little bit more. And then both could be true too, right? Like, uh, all right, give me maybe more of the, the fringe theories of a certain subject. And so it's at least curved mm. of like, all right, these are the ideas that are out there, but you know, people are still playing around with so that you have that balance of accurate information, but then an understanding of how to evolve the field's uh, that we exist in because you know it is it is the sciences of course there's consensus driven but uh, you you need people still testing the fringes without uh, maybe that that's a difficult thing too like we're seeing that play out in popular culture and across science and not not being a great conversational I don't know forum to discuss science and new ideas and again the the COVID conversation is is a good one we'll talk as much as we want to about it. But yeah, of how to communicate science and how science works and testing different ideas um, to, the, to the public, that's difficult alone. How do you programmatically solve that for something like uh, a large language model yet to be determined? Yeah, and what worries me sometimes is that ChatGPT was uh, trained on Reddit and on Twitter, which is now called <laughs> X as of this morning. And... That worries me a lot because I've seen a lot of really dodgy stuff on there, totally incorrect, versus, you know, your obviously scientific publications from PubMed. And what we might weigh more highly, they weigh differently. And we have no idea how it came up with, you know, the background to these particular words and putting things together. So it's it's a problem and you just need to be acutely aware. And you just can't trust necessarily everything it says. You know, it's mostly correct, but you have to apply some critical evaluation and actually read what, you know, pops out. 
because it may be wrong. Yeah. And, and okay. So another thing to that is there's that limitation. And then the understanding that it's always changing and evolving, right? GPT is kind of a live product. We've kind of already seen the, the release of from 3.5 to four. And then there's these interesting articles in terms of um, continued drift in answers and accuracy even over time. There was that paper from Stanford I have pulled up right here. How is ChatGPT's behavior changing over time? Um, and it's fascinating to see because they ask it pretty benign questions that you'd think would be consistent over time. Um, they, they have a couple of different categories of like math problems, sensitive questions, coding problems, and I think visual reading. I thought the math problems was the most interesting because you, you'd assume this to be pretty straightforward just based on the interaction, me having a limited understanding of all the LLM nuances, but something asking a question like, is the number, um, what is it, 17,077 prime? And what the researchers did is they asked this question back in March of 2023, and then again later in June of 2023, and it was a drop of like 95% in accuracy, if just yes or no. And for those not so inclined to the prime numbers here, it is prime, um, or rather, yeah, it is prime, but in June, uh, GPT-4 would consistently say that it's not prime. And I had to test this out myself. Yeah, and it seemed like such a straightforward thing. So I went on my GPT uh, login and I said, hey, is 17077 prime? And it said, no. And I was like, oh, what? I would not have known that unless I had read this paper. And yeah, if ever I was doing a report on prime numbers and I had this specific number, I would be wrong. So yeah, these things, and, and that's a huge drop in accuracy from March to June. So these are the things that's like, mm. again, can be really insidious, not easy to catch um, because it's changing and updating over time. So it's something to be expected uh, whenever you're using a resource like this. If, if you're going to be leaning on it, you got to have some confidence and understanding of actually how to interpret the outputs themselves. So what I've been doing recently is actually dual modeling, you know, using two different models. It feels like cheating, ah. actually, uh, using Claude 2 and ChatGPT. And like actually the other day, I got uh, ChatGPT to produce uh, some code. And then uh, I copied and pasted that. It didn't really work. It was in an older version of language because ChatGPT, you know, has a cutoff date of uh, 2021. And so it was in an older format. So then I popped into Claude 2 and I said, update this to the, the latest specification. And bang, there you go. It updated it. And so it's like using the power of two different models simultaneously, you know, to get an actual working result is really, really cool. And okay, that's, I love that example because that's not something most people would do. I feel like this is the onus of the early adopters to try many things and then report back to the community. Cause it's like the people who are tinkering right now of like, okay, how does Claude react versus GPT? And, and then put that out to the community, you know, in some weird way, as we transcribe this podcast, this will make it into the GPT models, right? As it uh, informs yeah. itself of how to answer these I questions. Mean, because that's what we're doing for show notes. Uh, we're just, yeah. popping, uh, well, the transcript is generated by uh, an AI in Descript. Don't know how they do it, but uh, they've been in for a while. And then it, it's, it's okay. It's a bit ropey on, on some words and whatever. Um, like I got your, your surname wrong as well. Uh, and it, not it surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, you know, you throw it into ChatGPT or into Claude, and then you can tell it, you can ask questions and, you know, boil it down. Um, and actually I made a mistake. I, I had code interpreter turned on 
and it tried to write code to interpret the transcript uh, because I said, you know, give me show notes. And then it decided, okay, well, I need timestamps. I need to know what happened at each timestamp, what are the most important things. Um, Bill was building code to do this big, huge model. And I'm like, no, this is not what I want. I kept failing as well because for whatever, it just couldn't pull stuff out. And then actually when you turn off code interpreter and just do the standard chat GPT and say, summarize this or, you know, give me show notes, it worked actually pretty well. And even with typos and all the mistakes that uh, Descript's AI makes, it fixes them because it understands context and why the word should be there. So it's not just predicting the next word, it's taking everything in and then going, actually, this is how it should actually all fit together. And I understand, you know, that word there probably is that word. And, you know, this is how it's linked. So it is, that, that's an example of actually using multiple different models simultaneously yeah. to, to get to an end result, which is to give show notes for our podcast so that other people can then, you know, like search for more easily and find out what we're actually talking about. Okay, so with, with all these kinds of things in mind, knowing that it's still, it, it's wild because I think last episode you talked about like a quarter of human population have in some way interacted um, with either GPT or, or large language models or AI in the context we're speaking about, but it does still feel like it's in the tinkering stage, right? Because there's so many sort of um, dark alleys you can walk yourself down without even knowing exactly the dangers of uh the materials you're producing there. So in the context of, you know, a bioinformatics lab or like, you know, maybe even for example, when you, if you were advising a, a molecular biologist at the Quadrum who's, who needs these bioinformatics capabilities, and he, he comes to you, he's like, oh, Andrew, I have all these data. I need to make sense of it. I was thinking about hiring a bioinformatics scientist, but I got GPT. Uh, what, what, what exactly would your advice be to somebody like that who maybe think, this is the this is the answer all. What would the yeah? How would you direct that conversation? Yeah, I guess uh, it, an Excel power user can now do like a lot of data analysis by typing stuff in ChatGPT. But you need an expertise there, you know, to actually figure out is this right or wrong, and to actually say don't do this or do that, and. Yeah, to, to properly guide it and have that domain knowledge. And that's the difference. You know, if you're blindly going into something, you get a result, but you won't necessarily know is it correct. I remember uh, talking to a, a fields uh, engineer from one of the sequencing companies, and they were like, yeah, you know, this sequencer is super easy to get data out of. It may not be right, but, you know, it's super <laughs> easy to run. Yeah. Um. So that that's the thing, you know, it is the barrier to entry is so low but you do have to be super cautious. And I would say you always need to have some kind of expertise, you know, to answer those questions. And I think that's the big takeaway there is that you need some level of expertise. I think the way I would maybe try to succinctly frame it is that these tools can extend the functionality of a bioinformatics scientist, not replace, right? So you always need some kind of core bioinformatics SME within arm's reach whenever you're using these tools so that you can extend their capabilities, right? So that if they're tasked with analyzing certain levels of data, it can extend their capabilities in that it can provide a lot of boilerplate, boilerplate code to kind of expedite the process of turning through data. Um, but it also, that individual would be able to assess the outputs, assess the process in kind of the ways we've described because they have that kind of experience uh, and, and even expectation of the tools to know what's going on. Uh, whereas yeah. if you don't have that, yeah, you, you could be running analysis in, in, in a way that 
is completely incorrect, right? Like it might be something, again, sort of insidious to the code that is actually um, writing where in kind of a benign case, it's using too much copy resources, like what you've described, or in maybe the most egregious sense, it might be doing something absolutely incorrect that you won't be able to catch unless you had sort of a, a more seasoned eye taking a look at things. I guess like a, in a wet lab, like robots haven't replaced all the humans in labs. And when they do fail, you know, the robot can't fix things, no matter how good it thinks it is or how, how good the salesperson says it is. Like, uh, you know, sometimes with liquid handling robots, you can have little bubbles being introduced or, you know, minor little things, but actually to make a huge difference to results or, you know, the machine, the way it's operating, maybe is causing contamination, cross contamination. And that's where you need, you know, your actual experts on hand to go, hang on a second. This is what it means. You know, you can really drill down to it and, you know, go through the protocol and say, no, you know, we need to do it slightly differently or maybe do this step manually, or maybe we need to rewrite it totally or get a totally different instrument in or calibrate it. You know, these are all things that have to happen and you need those experts like just there going, hang on a second. So I don't think we're going to be out of a job anytime soon. It will make us more efficient and we will be able to do a lot more, you know, with our time, which I think is fantastic because there's so much data out there and there's so many projects that uh, we all want to do, like, but we'd never get the chance to probably do half them or even a fraction of them, you know? And so this will give us all that extra capacity to do even better bioinformatics. Agreed completely. And I like that uh, analogy of, of uh, robotics and automation in the laboratory as well, because it still needs, you know, maybe a senior or principal scientist could oversee things and it does fail at certain times and it takes a, a bit of a QC check and expert side to, to realize what went wrong and how to troubleshoot and, and how to fix things along the way. Um, and I think that probably even gets to a good point of like um, how to get started is by using these resources on things you're comfortable with. Like even if it's just basic scientific writing or communication, you can throw that into GPT and you're going to see if it's a field that is kind of niche and specific, it's it's good, it inevitably will start hallucinating. Right. And you're going to see that pretty on and our field can get pretty nuanced pretty quickly. So I think that would be my sort of general recommendation to people who are looking to start using these resources and apply it to their uh, laboratory works or daily production is use it on materials that you're comfortable with that when you see the outputs, you can understand where the hallucinations kind of arise. I think in so many instances and use cases, you're going to see absolute accuracy, especially for like really mundane uh, template boilerplate code, as we spoke about. But then you're going to see, you're going to have this sort of expert side to be able to catch uh, when things uh, kind of go, start going left a little bit. And don't put any patient data in there. Huge. Yeah, that's a good one. Whatever it is, because you're still sending data out. Uh, it's funny yeah. that you say that because uh, my wife, she works at a hospital. And when GBT first launched, everyone was using it like, oh my gosh, because it. I think there's even those first uh the kind of metrics of GPT, it's like passing the USMLE, like the US uh, boards uh, examination at like, you know, flying colors and things like that. But they had to, my, my wife's hospital had to send a huge email out to all the practitioners, like stop sending patient data. Like you guys are sending data out. This is not something that's running locally. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So that is a good caveat too, especially with people using code interpreter. You might have sensitive data there. You're sending it out. And they have some information about like scrubbing it after 30 days or whatever it is, but that's a good caveat. But, the, you know, they're providing a service free because they want your data as well, you know? So it, yeah. it's a two-way street there. You have to always bear that in mind. 
I think that's pretty good. So anything else on your mind in terms of laboratories that are starting to implement this? We talked about the caveats. We talked about having somebody expert in, in, in play, not sharing any sensitive metadata uh, as, as you're using these services. Any other last uh, wrap up of, hey, when you're implementing this, when you start walking down this road, don't forget this. Well, I'd say make it as easy as possible for your employees to use it because you will get productivity gains, you know. So go and pay for uh, a subscription for different people, you know, be it Copilot or, or ChatGPT. Just make it as easy as possible for your employees to actually use it and lower that barrier of entry because it will be useful for a lot of people. And they will, you know, it'll save them a lot of time in their in their day and they can do other things. And this is not going anywhere. People need to learn how to use these tools and understand where the, the edges of things are. So yeah, I I, uh, I like that as a sort of a last tip is get your workforce exposed to these resources. And if you don't, there are 13 year old children coming behind you who are, you know, living and breathing this from day one and they will, you know, be taking your jobs in the future if you're the old fogies you know who uh refuse luddites who refuse to use this uh new technology yeah exactly it sounds like you're speaking a personal experience there you might know a 13 year old who's <laughs> eating this stuff up ready to kind of take on the job uh, take on the workforce all right that's pretty good i think that's a good uh i'll wrap up to this section of uh how to get started using ai in uh, bioinformatics lab